Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Jackie Doyle Price. Number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Major Matthew Collins and Lance Sergeant Mark Bergen from 1st Battalion, the Irish Guards. They died in Afghanistan last Wednesday after their vehicle was caught in a blast from an IED. They were both hugely respected, passionate and dedicated soldiers and they will be greatly missed. Our thoughts and our deepest condolences should be with their families, their friends and their colleagues. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others and further to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Jackie Doyle Price. I would also like to uh, pay tribute to our fallen heroes, and I'm sure I speak for many in the House when we have to remember the debt to which we owe our brave, brave armed forces, particularly at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would the Prime Minister be aware that there are 14 members opposite who signed a, an early day motion congratulating Uncut UK, despite that uh, organisation's refusal to condemn Saturday's violence? Yeah. Will he join with me and urge them to withdraw their names? Yeah. 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 Oh, oh. I thank the Honourable Lady for her question. First of all, I think we should be absolutely clear. The scenes in central London of property and shops and banks and livelihoods being destroyed were completely and utterly unacceptable. And the police should have our full support in the way they policed the march and the action that they took. I do think it's important for people to understand that UK Uncut refused to condemn this violence and members opposite should remove their names from that early day motion. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Major Matthew Collins and Lance Sergeant Mark Bergen, who died in Afghanistan? They did show enormous bravery and courage, and all of our thoughts are with their family and friends. Can I start by asking the Prime Minister about the ongoing situation in Libya, and in particular, can he tell the House what is his policy on arming the rebels? Can I thank the Right Honourable Gentleman for his question? And perhaps before starting, perhaps on behalf of uh, everyone in the House, I can congratulate him and Justine on the happy news of their forthcoming wedding. Uh, and I'm sure with everyone to wish them a long and happy life together. In terms of uh, the situation on the ground, uh, what I can report, obviously it is an extremely fluid situation, but there's no doubt in anyone's mind the ceasefire is still being breached and it is absolutely right for us to keep up our pressure under UN Security Council 1973. I can confirm to the House that the Coalition took action yesterday against regime forces harassing civilian vessels trying to get into Misrata, and yesterday and overnight the RAF flew 24 sorties, tornado aircraft destroyed artillery and an armoured fighting vehicle near Sirt. He asked the question about arming the rebels. Now, I've said before in this House that we must do everything to comply with both the Security Council resolutions. And as I told the House, the legal position is clear that the arms embargo applies to the whole territory of Libya. But at the same time, UNSCR 1973 allows all necessary measures to protect civilians and civilian populated areas. And our view is that this would not necessarily rule out the provision of assistance to those protecting civilians in circum circumstances. So as I've told the House before, we do not rule it out, but we have not taken the decision to do so. Ed Miliband. Well, can I thank the Prime Minister for that reply, and I'm sure it will be explored further in the Foreign Secretary's uh, statement at 12.30. Can I also thank him for his very kind wishes, uh, and indeed all members of the House, for my forthcoming wedding, a day I'm very much uh, looking forward to. 
I may be coming to him, Mr. Speaker, in, in the next couple of months for some advice on stag nights, because I know he orga- knows how to organise memorable stag nights. Uh, let, let, me, uh, let, 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 let me turn to the issue of... Uh, let, let me turn to a different issue, uh, Mr. Speaker, which is uh, the issue of tuition fees. The Prime Minister said that universities will only charge £9,000 tuition fees in exceptional circumstances. Can the Prime Minister tell the House of the 23 universities who have announced their plans, how many are planning to charge £9,000? First of all, can I say I'm sure there'll be a free exchange of advice. Um, I I certainly found when I was leader of the opposition, I would have done anything to have a honeymoon, um, and he probably feels the same way, but we do do wish him well. In terms of uh, tuition fees, obviously uh, the the point about 9,000 is well made, that universities can only charge 9,000 if they go through a number of steps to prove that they really are improving access to universities. I don't have the figures available, but I'm I'm, I'm very happy to give them to him. Miliband. Mr Speaker, this is an important point because the Prime Minister reassured people when he was selling his tuition fees policy, and it was in his own words, that there would be a basic threshold of £6,000 in exceptional circumstances. Some universities will be allowed to charge £9,000. Well, of the 23 universities that have announced their fees, 18, that's more than 80%, are planning to charge £9,000. It's not the exception... It's the rule. Now, I'm afraid, I'm afraid not for the first time, uh, Mr Speaker, this policy has not been implemented in a competent way. Now, now the, the next problem that he faces in relation to this policy is it will cost the Treasury more money to fund the loans. Can he guarantee that money will not come from university budgets or through a reduction in student numbers? Well, first of all, it is worth reminding the House that university tuition fees were first introduced by the party opposite. The point I'd make to them is there are two two important points on this threshold. First of all, each university will have to spend £900 per place on access requirements. That's that's the first point. The second point is it is the uh, the Office of Access that will decide whether or not they can go to that 9,000 threshold and very tough... Uh, very tough rules have been published and placed in this House for people to see. In terms of the additional revenue, the additional money that will go into higher education, he's absolutely right. Because of the system we're introducing, we will actually be spending more overall on universities. That's right. But the key is this, that because of the reductions in spending we're having to make elsewhere, this is the only way to guarantee we have well-funded universities, well-stocked libraries, well-paid lecturers and good universities to take on the world. Mr Speaker, I was just asking a very simple question, which was where was the money going to come from, given that they've miscalculated the level of tuition fees? Because universities up and down the country are worried that this Prime Minister doesn't think an 80% cut in the teaching budget is enough and they're going to come back for more. Now, let me turn to another area of public services, which I don't think the government's getting quite right, and that is in relation to policing. The police minister was asked on the radio this morning eight times whether the number of frontline police officers will fall. Can I ask the Prime Minister, will there be fewer frontline police officers in the years ahead? Well, according to Home Office statistics, if all forces achieve the current best average for visibility and availability, that would increase the number of officers available by 8,000. Miliband! Mr Speaker, 
Mr. Speaker, I don't think people will, will even understand what that answer was supposed to mean, frankly. Because, because he, should listen, he should listen to the Chief Inspector of Lancashire. We cannot leave the front line untouched, and that is because of the scale of the cuts. And also, 2,000 police officers are being forced out under the A19 rule. Sergeant Dave Hewitt, I will be walking away from the force, unfortunately not through choice. As far as I'm concerned, I'm still young and I wanted to continue being a neighbourhood sergeant. That sounds like a frontline police officer to me. Now, can I ask the Prime Minister the same question? Does he expect there to be fewer frontline police officers in the years ahead? Yes or no? There is no reason why there should be fewer frontline officers. Mr Speaker, both parties parties agree that the police budget has to be cut. I heard the Shadow Chancellor on the Mar programme and he said this, we would have made cuts to policing. So, they would have cut policing, we have to cut the policing budget. The question is, how do you make those cuts? We say you've got to freeze police pay for two years, you've got to reform police allowances, you've got to cut their paperwork. Because you oppose all of those things, you'd have to make deeper cuts in police numbers. That is the case. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, it's it's very simple. We propose 12% cuts in the policing budget. He's proposing 20% cuts. And HMIC said if you go beyond 12% cuts, then it's likely to lead to cuts in frontline officers, which is exactly what is happening up and down this country. Mr Speaker, the truth is he used to claim that they were the party of law and order, but now he is cutting the number of police officers up and down the country. It's the wrong choice for the police, it's the wrong choice for communities, and it's the wrong choice for the country as well. Not for the first time, the right honourable gentleman is completely wrong. The difference between the difference between a 12% reduction and what we're proposing is the freeze in police pay and the reform of police allowances that he refuses to support. And I have to say, has anyone seen a more ridiculous spectacle than the right honourable gentleman marching against the cuts that it was his government that caused? I know. I know Martin Luther King said he had a dream. I think it's time the honourable gentleman woke up. Sarah Newton. the high regard the Coast Guard service and all around the UK and I'm very reassured that the Minister has said that the current modernisation proposals are not a done deal. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that it's very important to get the plans right? I absolutely agree with the Honourable Lady and as a Cornish MP I'm sure that she would want uh, me to say and the whole of the House would want me to say how much we feel for, for our colleague Cheryl Murray, for the Honourable Member for South East Cornwall who lost her husband in a, in a tragic fishing accident uh, and that just demonstrates the extraordinary risks that these people in our coastal community take and our heart should go out to her and her family. Obviously. We want to make changes only if they improve the level of Coast Guard support that people in fishing communities and elsewhere get. That is what the reform's about, trying to make sure the real impetus is on the front line. And if that isn't the case, 
then obviously we will have to reconsider those reforms. That's why they're being reviewed. And I would say to everyone who cares about this issue, work with us to make sure we get the maximum amount in those lifeboats and else other ways of, of helping our fishing and other communities. Margaret Ritchie. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does the Prime Minister acknowledge the serious concerns that have been raised about the adverse implications and complications for cancer patients under the proposals in the Welfare Reform Bill for replacing DLA with personal independence payments, and will he therefore investigate with ministers the case for creating a straightforward cancer care and sport allowance which would be available to those who have been diagnosed with cancer and are either undergoing or awaiting treatment? I think the Honourable Lady asked a a very important question. We will look very carefully, as the Government Medical Advisor is, about DLA and its interaction with people that have cancer. But I think that everyone on all sides of the House should recognise that DLA does need uh, reform. The fact is there are 130,000 people on DLA who have not had a claim revised at all since the benefit was introduced in 1992. There are three-quarters of a million people who have had the same claim for 10 years and no contact from the Department. There are actually... There are um, 21,000 people of working age getting DLA because they're on drink or drugs. So there really is reform necessary, but making sure we assess people with cancer properly is definitely part of that reform. Dan Biles. Um, Can I congratulate the Prime Minister on what appears to have been a very successful London conference on Libya? Um, Can I ask the Prime Minister um, what measures are being taken to ensure that we can expand the coalition of countries taking part in action to include regional players such as Qatar and others, because this is vital if we're to maintain regional support. Well, I, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question. It was a successful conference yesterday. My right honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, will be making a statement about it later. Over 40 delegations, widespread representation from the, from the Islamic world, and a very common message coming from everyone at the conference about broadening and deepening the alliance, about enforcing UN Security Council Resolution 1973. And there also was new support in terms of actually equipment from including uh, the Swedes who are making um, uh, eight aircraft available. So I think we are on track. There's very strong support for what's being, being done. But we need to keep up the support, particularly in the Arab world. Ian Austin. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Families who've lost their jobs have been able to apply for emergency loans to tide them over. So why, when unemployment's at a 17-year high and predicted to get worse, does information leaked to me show that the government's planning to cut this fund tomorrow and why just like the cuts last week to winter fuel payments was this not announced in the budget what we are doing is putting in place the biggest and boldest program to help unemployed people since the great depression that is what the work program is all about and i would say to the honourable gentleman he should be working with us to make sure it can help everyone including those in his constituency peter aldous thank thank you mr speaker Taking into account the high levels of deprivation in Lowestoft in my constituency and in Great Yarmouth, coupled with the unrivalled potential of the East Anglian coast for creating jobs in the offshore energy sector, does the Prime Minister agree with me that these prospects would be significantly boosted by the creation of an enterprise zone? Well, the Honourable Gentleman makes a a very articulate case for an enterprise zone. I'm delighted that we have introduced 21 enterprise zones. Clearly, there is a a case for colleagues to make for more. I think there are real strengths in his area in terms of green tech jobs that I know that he is supporting, and I'm sure the Chancellor will have heard heard the message that he gives. Mr Nigel Dodds. 
Dozens of families in my constituency in North Belfast have been put out of their homes overnight and remain out of their homes as a result of terrorist activity, the latest in a long line of such incidents in Northern Ireland recently. Will the Prime Minister join with me in condemning this terrorist activity and as well as supporting the police and the army with resources? Would the Prime Minister agree that as we approach the Assembly elections in a few weeks' time and marking the first full term of uninterrupted, stable devolution in Northern Ireland for generations, that the best answer we can give to these people is to reject them, reject their policies, reject them wanting to drag us back to the past and keep Northern Ireland moving forward? I think the Honourable Gentleman spoke with support on all sides of the House for what he says, with both of the points that he makes. First of all, we have to be eternally vigilant against terrorists in in Northern Ireland and elsewhere, and we should do that, and he knows the British Government will give the Northern Ireland Executive every support that it can. But secondly, the best proof of success and that there is a non-violent path is to show the success of our democratic institutions as he and his colleagues and all parties in Northern Ireland are doing so. Greg Mulholland... Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, councillors on the Yorkshire and Humber Joint Health Overview and Scrutiny Committee were told by senior doctors that if Leeds loses its children's heart surgery unit, then ambulance transfers would be unsafe and could prove fatal. Given that the report into the review of children's heart units, of course, commissioned by the last government, contains factual errors, and there is a question over the impartiality of the board that made the final recommendations, Will the Prime Minister now agree to halt the process? And if not, does he think the only option is judicial review? Well, the Honourable Gentleman is absolutely right to speak up for his constituency, which could be affected by this review, as indeed could my constituency be affected by this review. And we want to make sure this review is as transparent as possible and is involved and engaged with with parents and with everyone in communities. But I would say this. I think there are many times when rather bogus arguments are put forward for specialisation in the NHS. But I think in a really complicated case like child heart surgery, there are cases for specialisation. And as passionately as we all want to defend our own hospitals, we do have to think about clinical safety and what's best for for children. So he's absolutely right to speak up for his hospital, as I am for the one that serves my constituency, but I think we have to have some understanding about the complexity of what we're dealing with. Geraint Davis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does, Does the Prime Minister understand that unilaterally setting the minimum price for carbon in Britain will drive inward investors like Tata Steel in Swansea out? because carbon trading by its very nature requires a common price, not a unilateral price, and therefore will need to spend that price and send its Chancellor to, to, to the EU to negotiate a common price so that we have a, so we have a level playing field for inward investment. Well, well, I respect the Honourable Gentleman's views, but I, I don't agree with them. I think the steps taken in the budget are right, and I think we should judge companies like Tata by the investments that they're making. I've been hugely heartened by the fact that Tata are putting more investment into the UK, and if we take, obviously, the case of Redcar, which closed under the last government, it's going to be reopening in part because of the investment that Tata are making. So, of course, I listen to the Honourable Gentleman, but I think Ratton Tata knows a bit more about his business than he does. David Burrow. Thank you, um, Speaker. My constituent, Jeff Jacobs, is in Parliament for Prostate Cancer Charities Action Day to remind us that it is uh, the most common cancer in men, with uh, only three out of ten men being aware of the PSA blood test and 10,000 men each year dying of this disease. Does the Prime Minister have a dream of better outcomes for the increasing investment in NHS? 
I, I think the Honourable Gentleman is absolutely right to raise this issue, and, and he's right, it is both a dream we can have, but it is a nightmare for many families and many people in this country, the fact that prostate cancer is such a massive killer, and we really do need to do something about it. That means better early diagnosis, better testing, better access to drugs, all of those things are contained within our plans for the NHS. Dr Alistair MacDonald. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will be aware of the large number of women across the UK, including a number in my constituency that are female, aged in their late 50s, 58, 59, on low incomes. He will be aware that speeding up the equalisation of the state pension age will affect some 2.9 million, many of them having to wait two years, and as a result will lose up to 10,000. These are usually people on low incomes and marginalised economies. Can I ask the Prime Minister if he intends to put in place any, uh, any measures to cushion the severe effects on these people in low income and their stretched financial circumstances? Now, the, the Honourable Gentleman makes an important point, and of course the change in the pension age and the equalisation of the pension age does ask people to, 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 to work for longer in their lives. And obviously it is a big change, but I think that because people are living longer, it's right that we make this change to make sure we can have a good and strong and affordable pension system for the future. And the biggest thing we're doing is linking the pension to earnings rather than prices, which means that someone retiring today will be getting £15,000 more over the next period than they would have done under the old plan. So the, the one is partly to pay for the other. Robert Halfon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, the last government left us with one in five young people unemployed. Does my honourable friend agree that the new university technical schools will help transform the lives of young people and are a matter of social justice as well as economic efficiency? And will he support Lord Baker in supporting the strong bid of Harlow College to have a, a UTC? The Honourable Gentleman is absolutely right to speak up for Harlow and to speak up for university technical colleges, which I think are going to be a great innovation in our country. And I pay tribute to Lord Baker for the work that he's doing and to my right honourable gentleman, the Education Secretary, and the Chancellor who put extra money in the budget so we can have 21 of these colleges opening in our country, hopefully including Harlow. Mr Christopher Leslie. The coalition agreement promised that the NHS budget would increase in real terms in each year. Uh, since the spending review, inflation is spiralling very high, and we're now facing a real terms cut of a billion pounds for the NHS. Yeah, yeah. What is the Prime Minister going to do about that? Yeah. Well, we said that NHS spending would increase in real terms each year, and it will. Amos. <laughs> Mr David Amos. As as we approach Good Friday, we might reflect on the role of Pontius Pilate. With that in mind, would my right honourable friend reassure the House that he will never address crowds in Hyde Park Corner protesting about reductions in spending if he had been responsible for the economic mess which was, was the result of the reductions in the first place? My honourable friend puts it extremely well. Far from standing on the shoulders of the suffragettes or whatever nonsense we heard at the weekend, the fact is the right honourable gentleman is sitting in a great big pool of debt that was his creation and he's got absolutely no idea what to do about it. Helen Jones. In 2009, the Prime Minister promised families with disabled children, in his own words, a crack team of medical experts, doctor, nurse, 
physio to act as a one-stop shop to assess families and get them the help they need. Can you tell the House how many of these teams have been set up? What I can tell the Honourable Lady, and it was very much something based on, based on my own experience of having repeated assessments when you're trying to get help and benefits and social work, is that in the Special Educational Needs Green Paper, that precise idea is rapidly becoming government policy. Caroline Dynage. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Despite some local unhelpful party political mischief-making about the future of our valuable... Sure Start Services. Would the Prime Minister join me in welcoming Hampshire County Council's proposals to protect frontline Sure Start Services while saving public money by cutting back office costs? The Honourable Lady is absolutely right, and the key thing is that the head of Sure Start Services has herself said that there is money available in the budget to keep Sure Start open. That money is not being reduced. Mr. Chris Williamson. Speaker, on the 24th of March last year, six weeks before the last general election, the Derby Telegraph reported that the Prime Minister had accused me of distributing inaccurate information about Conservative plans for the winter fuel allowance. It turns out I was right and he was wrong. So unless he's going to overrule his Chancellor, will he take this opportunity to apologise to the millions of pensioners who rely on winter fuel allowance and apologise to me for his unfair I, I, I can't believe I accused him of anything because I had absolutely no idea who he was. But, um, <laughs> but while we're at it, we promised that we would keep the winter fuel payments. We've kept the winter fuel payments. We promised we'd keep the cold weather payments. We kept the cold weather payments. We promised to uprate the pension in line with earnings. We increased the earnings. The earnings we said we'd keep the bus passes, the TV licences. We did all of those things. And yes, he did mislead his electors at the election. Queen, Queen's Award winning Norval Talk, Rally winning ProDrive and uh, Global winning CGT are all manufacturing businesses based in Banbury. Uh, they're all doing so well uh, that they want to move into larger premises. But they also uh, have immediate uh, skill vacancies that they need to fill. What collectively can we do to try and ensure that people who are unemployed elsewhere in the country but who have skills know of the skills they can see? But we do have other people to accommodate. The Prime Minister. I think the Honourable Gentleman is right to raise this issue, and the reaction opposite shows they're not interested in manufacturing and in skills and in technology and in making sure we expand those things. We're going to have 250,000 apprenticeships over this Parliament. We're going to have the university technical colleges that will make a difference, and it's very good news to hear about the expansion of manufacturing in his constituency. Yvonne Favark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Welfare Reform Bill proposes to introduce a £50 civil penalty for claimants who make a mistake in completing the application form. At the same time as this is introduced, advice agencies have stated they're facing a perfect storm of funding cuts, and many fear they won't be in existence to help the vulnerable in completing these forms. Does the Prime Minister think that this is fair? Well, I would make two points to the Honourable Lady. First of all, it is fair that the government, in terms of the money it puts into the Citizens Advice Bureau, is not cutting that money for exactly the reason that she gives. And I would urge all councils to do what my local council have done, which is find savings in bureaucracy, to make sure you're putting money into the Citizens Advice Bureau. 
the point she makes the point she makes about fines for people who misclaim benefits, I'm afraid to say I do think it's right. There's far too much in our system that is lost from fraud and lost from error, and I don't think that taxpayers go to work and work hard in order to fund people for benefits that they're not entitled to. Mingus Campbell. Can I urge my right honourable friend to display extreme caution in the matter of the supply of arms to the so-called rebels in Libya? The legal position is by no means clear, as his previous answer to the Leader of the Opposition made eloquently obvious. In addition to that, the political consequences of doing so, particularly among those nearly 40 countries that were represented at the successful conference in London yesterday, is very difficult to predict. My right honourable friend is, is absolutely right to be cautious and sceptical, and I think this is a decision we should consider with huge care. And as I've said, while uh, the, the legal position, I think, is clearer, uh, I think there are some very strong arguments like his we'd have to listen to. What I would say to him, though, is yesterday I met Mr Jabril of the Interim Transitional National Council, and I was reassured to see that those people who are forming an alternative government uh, in Benghazi, they do want it to be interim. They want it to be transitional. They are Democrats. They are not tribal. And they want to see a future for the whole of Libya where the people have a choice over how they're governed. And I was, uh, I, I was encouraged by what I heard. Heidi Alexander. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week, I had the privilege of meeting a group of 25 women currently studying on ESOL courses in Lewisham. They shared the Prime Minister's desire, as I do, that every migrant in the UK speaks the language of their new home. Given the Prime Minister's belief that the practical things can make a big difference to community cohesion, will he commit today to putting a stop to this government's short-sighted cuts to English language courses? Well, I have to say to the Honourable Lady, we are going to have to take some difficult decisions over, over student numbers, and I think the priority should be to make sure that our universities can go on attracting the best and the brightest from around the world. I'll come on to our point, from around the world, and that's why we've said there should be a post study work route. But it does mean we should be tough, particularly on those colleges that are not highly regarded. And the fact is that over the last year, around 90,000 students were coming to colleges that didn't have proper regard at all. Fiona Bruce. Thank you, Mr. A multinational is applying... A multinational is applying to build an incinerator the size of a football pitch some 500 metres from the centre of the small market town of Middlewich in my constituency. There is no need for this provision. It will involve importing waste and it has already been unanimously rejected by the local planning committee. Does the Prime Minister agree that the concerns of local people as to the negative impact this will have on their town should be accorded paramount importance when this proposal is considered on appeal? Now, I do agree with her that local considerations should be taken into account. That's one of the reasons why we made the changes to the IPC that we have. And I think it's very important local communities have their say. And she has put the case extremely strongly. Wally. Local MPs met with the North Staffordshire Chamber of Commerce last week. They asked us why North Staffordshire was not on the list to have a local enterprise zone. 
Will the Prime Minister understand the need for job creation in Stoke-on-Trent and arrange for his colleagues at local government and at Biz to liaise with us and with the Treasury to make sure that we get that investment when the new list is announced in July? I completely understand the point the Honourable Lady makes, but particularly in Stoke, where the pottery is community. I wish the Shadow Chancellor would occasionally shut up and listen to the answer. Members can now follow the Prime Minister's advice to the Shadow Chancellor. We need a bit of order. The Prime Minister. I may be alone in finding him the most annoying person in modern politics, but I, I, anyway, uh, I'm sure. No, no. I think I've got a feeling the Leader of the Opposition will one day agree with me, but there we are. Right, where were we? The potteries, yes. Look, clearly there are massive issues because of the decline of the potteries. I completely understand the need for Stoke to have that support. I think it's very important that she's working to bring together the pottery communities, including other MPs, including the Local Enterprise Partnership. And yes, I'll certainly ask my right hand friend, the Chancellor, to look at whether it can be in the next lot of enterprise zones, because we want to help the pottery communities that she represents. Mr Malcolm Bruce. Mr Speaker, in the light of the announcement by Statoil this week that they were cancelling £6 billion of investment in the North Sea following the budget, will the Prime Minister ensure that his ministers in the Treasury and DEC engage with the industry to explain how the field allowances might be adjusted to ensure that this valued investment goes ahead and jobs are not lost? Well, I will certainly look very carefully at the point that he makes. The, the, the point I would raise about Statoil is when you look at the regime in Norway, they actually have higher uh, taxes on petrol and on duties than we do in the UK. And I think the key point I'd make to my honourable friend is that when the companies in the North Sea made investment decisions, the oil price was around $65 a barrel. It's now around $115 a barrel. And I think the break that we're giving to the motorists by cutting petrol tax, including for people in his constituency, many of whom rely on their, on their cars, I think will be hugely welcome. Order. Statement, the Foreign Secretary.